0: Some say loyalty is all we ever had. You know I've been loyal. I'm thinking it's time. I want to be made. See this mouse? He says you're one of us. But was wrong. You got as much chance as being one of us as this little mouse right here. Stay still, don't even think about it. You know you should wear a mask. I can see your whole face. What we doing, partner? Right on time, partner. We gotta go now.
1: hello and welcome to the Matts movie reviews podcast i'm your host matthew perkovich and this is episode number two hundred and nineteen out now on video on demand is vault a true story based in 1975 about two low-level criminals who take part in one of the biggest heights in american history set in providence rhode island and starring an all-star cast including theo nossi chas and don johnson vault delves into an often overlooked moment in america's rich history of organized crime and does so with energy and style and i'm happy to say that the film's director and co-writer tom danucci is here to join me to talk about the movie tom thank you very much for joining me on the podcast
0: hey matt thanks for having me so this is really
1: interesting just reading back about the bonded vault heist now You are a Rhode Island native. I'm just curious. What was the first time you heard about it? I mean, was this something like some akin to like a folk story when you were growing up?
0: It sure was, Matt. You know, I'm Italian American, and in my neighborhood, it's it's comprised of predominantly Italian American people. And uh, this is a story that I heard my uncles talk about and my cousins talk about at the old, you know, at the dinner table, at family parties, and things like that. And in my home state of Rhode Island. Uh, it's one of those things where we don't have a professional sports team, so we all follow gangsters. We're all kind of excited by it. For for whatever reason, there was a large organized crime presence in Rhode Island. And it's in the news all the time, especially back in the 70s and 80s. And we kind of grew up just hearing about these characters and these larger-than-life figures that kind of roam the streets of Providence and, uh, you know, had a Robin Hood quality to them where, you know, at times they did do some positive things for the community but of course at the same time they were extremely notorious men and uh, there was murder and mayhem mixed in the the pot as well so uh, this this is a story uh, that kind of involves a lot of those characters and to me growing up hearing this story this was the most exciting one um, because of obviously uh, who would have the guts to rob from the mob you know robbing from other organized crime figures seems to be one of the dumbest things you could possibly do. Um, And sure enough, this kind of ragtag, low-level band of um, not-made men. It's very important, just to give you a quick backstory, in the Italian Cosa Nostra. La Cosa Nostra, that's another word for the black hand. It's basically another word for organized crime. Italian Americans, you had to be a made guy, and that basically meant that nobody could mess with you, nobody could order a hit on you without Uh, permission from everybody else and you were officially a member of the club so to speak the guys who robbed the place they weren't members of the club They uh, they were in fact a group of outsiders which makes this even more interesting because you've got this group of outsiders who had the guts to take on the mafia and rob this coveted mob bank if you will
1: That these outsiders, these low-level guys, would even attempt to pull off something like this and go against the mob in that way. Did that say something about the, I wouldn't say power struggle, but the lack of um, respect that certain criminal um, people had for the mob at that time? I mean, was the power of the mob at that time waning to the point where people could pull off a heist like this?
0: Well, the power wasn't necessarily waning, but the figurehead in charge, his power was in question. Uh, 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 depicted by Chaz Palmenteri in the film, uh, we have our character Raymond Petriarcha. And Raymond was in jail at the time of the heist. Hmm. And what was happening was the envelopes that would come to Raymond while he was in jail, you know, the kickbacks, the patronage that his men would have to give back to him, the percentage was going down and he was getting less and less money from a lot of the other organized crime syndicates. So he felt as though that, you know, wow, people aren't really, uh, you know, respecting my authority. So, So yeah, there was a degree of that because a lot of the prominent Italian figureheads were behind bars at the time. But, of course, what we later learned to find out, a leader of one of these organized crime syndicates being in jail certainly didn't mean that he was no longer in charge. A lot of them were able to continue conducting business as usual from the confines of their prison cell.
1: I found it really interesting how you were talking about Raymond Patriarca, and it seemed at that time, especially um, the 70s, maybe even the 60s as well, there were certain organized crime figures um, notorious for where they came from, the areas that did their work in, and also how they kind of became beneficiaries for their communities. Um, at Harlem at the time, you had Bumpy Johnson and Frank Lucas. Um, in this case, you had Raymond. I'm, I think I saw an interview with you how you were talking about back in those days, um, if you were in a neighborhood that was oversaw by, say, Arabian Patriarcha you can leave your doors open, uh, unlocked at night, because no one dared would try to do anything at that time. I'm really curious about the relationship between, say, your average Joe in citizen of Pro- Pro- um, Providence, Rhode Island, compared to an outsider, how did they see uh, Raymond? Did they kind of shrug off his indiscretions uh, because of the good he was doing for a community, or did they very much look at him as someone who should be feared?
0: Well, I think, as, like any polarizing character like that, uh, there was people on both sides of the fence, and, and some people right on the fence. And I think it came down to... The people of the community felt protected in a sense that, you know, you're not going to have some punk kids break into your house and and terrorize the neighborhood because these guys would keep the streets safe from that kind of skullduggery, if you will. But what would end up happening was, of course, you'd still end up with dead people on the streets occasionally. So it's kind of like, you know, it wasn't all good. Um, So I don't really have much of an opinion on that because, to be honest with you, that stuff happened a little bit before my time. You know, a lot of that stuff was going down in the 70s and early 80s. And it's hard for me to weigh in because I wasn't alive during the time. But everything that I've read from accounts and, ha- and interviews that I've conducted with people who were in the neighborhoods and were on both sides of the law at that time, Raymond was a very respected guy uh, throughout the community. People really did think that he did positive things for the people of Providence, Rhode Island and other parts of Rhode Island. And overall, I think that the the general consensus on the mafia at the time was if you don't mess with them, they're not going to mess with you. I mean, we're not talking about terrorists. These people weren't going to just, you know, randomly, uh, you know, harass somebody. Usually, if you had a problem with the mafia, it's because you got into business with the mafia or you made a deal with the mafia. And a lot of that stuff came with, obviously, unknown connotation that hey if you cross these guys they're not going to take you to court <laughs> you know they're going to handle it in their own uh matters of they're going to put justice and take justice into their own hands and that's just something that people knew when they were getting involved with them in the first place how did it
1: come to you um and the people um, you working with wanting to make this film was that because it's really interesting to me because a lot of people watch crime movies um, but this story in particular um, considering its standing in American crime history isn't something a lot of people really touched I think there was a book about it that was released um, some years ago but other than that it's not something that people talk about quite a bit so why the decision uh, from yourself uh, to want to make a movie about it.
0: Well, I think that a lot of that has to do with it happened in a really small city, in a really small state, in fact, the smallest state in the country. Um, so I think for a lot of years, it was overshined by things like the Lufthansa heist and uh, a lot of bigger uh, capers that went down in New York. Um, and, you know, it just was overshadowed by a lot of that. And the truth is, uh, Devon and Vault probably isn't isn't the only story like that, you know, the organized crime kind of ruled the roost. The the Italian mafia ruled the roost here in in the United States for decades and decades. You know, you're talking all the way back to, you know, the 20s and and all the way through uh, the early 90s and, and, you know, a lot of uh, exciting things probably happened in that time span. So I think it's just a matter of, there are a lot of these stories that people probably haven't heard of and Mm. the reason why I wanted to make it a movie was because I remember being a little 12-year-old chubby little 12-year-old Italian kid hearing the story from an uncle or a cousin, and, and long before I even knew I wanted to have a career in movies, I remember saying, wow, why isn't this a movie? This story would make a great movie. And this is long before I knew that I was going to become a filmmaker. It just sounded like the stuff of movies, as they say, you know?
1: Yeah, because it's almost uh, strange in fiction, I think, in some ways. It's just the gumption that these guys had and just how everything kind of unravels at the end. It just makes such good film material um who, so do you approach um your producers i know you work quite a bit with chad a30 um you work you collaborated with him when you were actor back in the days of like incubus and Losies and um he's a producer that's gone on to do some really big things uh bleed for this um working alongside mon scorsese on silence is now producing the irishman uh do you approach him and say hey i think this is going to be a great story let's see if we can put something together
0: well, it was kind of an interesting route that we took. You know, I had always heard about this story and I always wanted to do something with it, but it was on the back burner. As, you know, as filmmakers, we all have a dozen, maybe two dozen movies that we'd hope to make someday. Um, so this was probably at the forefront of the one I wanted to make. And then Chad and I, who have been collaborators for many years now. Well, we had been working on a story uh, about Raymond Petriarch as a standalone story. That's something that Chad had cooking. That was one of his passion projects that he had in the mix for a long time, in his filmmaker Dream Rolodex. So we kind of got together on that, and we started doing some research, and I said to myself, you know what? It's like, Chad, you know, this Bonded Vault thing and this Raymond thing, they're kind of very closely connected here. Maybe the idea is to tie these two together, And tell the story of the bonded vault with the backdrop of the looming presence of Raymond Petriarch's crime empire uh, Mm. hanging above us, you know, and and of course I don't want to give away any spoilers, I don't know how your show works, if people have already seen the movie or whatever, but there's a very kind of important moment at the end of the movie, which is why I wanted to really make the movie in the first place, that makes you realize just what a cool character Raymond is, Uh, you know. Right from jump. So it kind of just made sense for us to tell the story of the Bonded Vault with Raymond as the kind of, uh, you know, the looming figure When it comes in the to shadows. And
1: um, when it comes to casting uh, the lead roles of Deuce and Chucky, these are the low-level criminals we've been talking about who... Dare to pull off this heist Uh, On one end uh, you have Theo Rossi A lot of people know from Sons of Anarchy And Luke Cage Um, Now he is from New York From Staten Island to be specific Uh, On the other end in the role of Chucky You've got Clive Standin Who's as far away from New York as they come Born in Northern Ireland uh, He comes from Britain People know him from Vikings how did it come to that you got these two guys working together, especially Clive? Because Theo, there's a connection there, and I've, I've read in interviews that he knew about the vaults uh, um, uh, heist as well. It was something he always was interested in. Clive Stanton, however, comes from a different part of the world. How did how did they both um, come to pay sure. um, do some chucky in your movie?
0: Well, Theo was kind of a no-brainer, and he was actually the first actor we had onto the movie. And Chad and him had already had a great relationship. Uh, together. They had uh, uh, made a a film together and he just made so much sense because like you said, he's from Staten Island. He's a New Yorker. He understands what the the looming power of organized crime and the Italian mafia is all about. Uh, When we got on the phone and had our first conversation, I heard his voice and he had asked me what the accent was like and I I heard him say two sentences and I said, I don't think you're going to have a problem, Theo, uh, because that New York accent's not that far, you know, we're only uh, a short drive up the highway, up Route 95, Rhode Island to New York, so the accent's not that different, so it just made so much sense, it was a no-brainer for Theo to play Deuce, and then for Chucky, you know, uh, we had, uh, our casting agent had given us uh, a number of people to look at, and I had talked to quite, quite a few actors, and i had a skype session with clive and one thing about chucky that i always read about was he was this big kind of rogue figure he was a a real badass i mean he he could fight he could really hold hold his own and handle himself and uh i wanted that actor to be very big and physical uh and i got on a skype with clive and we just got to talking and aside from the fact that he was just a, a a very interesting person he he cared about the story and i could tell that He had done a little bit of his homework, and it was exciting to him. And we got to talking, and then, you know, I hear that he's this uh, former kickboxer, and he was a competitive kickboxer, highly ranked when he was a young man, and actually fought professionally at times, and that kind of just rang a bell in my head. And then, of course, he had already done a ton of action stuff in his series Taken and Vikings, and uh, we just got to talking, and it made a lot of sense. And then, as far as the accent goes... You know, Clive is one of the hardest working, more dedicated actors I've ever worked with. He worked day and night to get that accent right. He listened to tapes. uh, And actually, one thing he said, which was pretty cool, uh, he said, Tom, I want to hang out with a lot of the guys. You know, uh, some of the Rhode Islanders, some of your pals. And uh, the guy who plays Buddy Cranston, his name's Nick Principe, and he's one of my best friends from Rhode Island. We kind of both had this career in acting, and he went off to L.A., and did his thing, and we had linked up. and He's kind of a longtime collaborator of mine. And Nick's a, a good, old, good old-fashioned Rhode Island guy. Likes to hang out in Providence. Likes to go to the bars. Likes to go to concerts. Things like that. So Nick and him would hang out. Clive and Nick would hang out. And Nick kind of was his ambassador to Rhode Island. And showed him all the hot spots on Federal Hill in Providence. Which is kind of where all the gangsters used to hang out. Uh, it was great. You know, Clive really wanted to soak up the culture. And, and listen to, to what these people really sound like. So he spent some time uh in rhode island right before we shot and and really became like a sponge and he nailed it you know i tell people to this day like hey did you know that clive's from the uk and they're like get out of here no way i'm like oh yeah no he that's a total accent that he's putting on so uh credit to him because a lot he's fooling everybody
1: yeah it's a great accent i mean afterwards i want i was like who's playing chucky um, because I haven't really seen him before TV's not my thing I'm so busy watching movies Just as, as my job and such I was like, wow, he's a Brit uh, Never would have, have guessed that Because the accent is just so um, so convincing um, Surrounding Theo and, um, and Clive You have kind of like a who's who Of legendary actors in supporting roles Don Johnson, William Forsyth uh, There's Chuck Zito's there for a little bit Vincent Pastore makes an appearance So there's Burt Young Um, What I'm really interested in though is um, getting Chaz Palminteri to play Raymond because Chaz Palminteri is a really interesting guy um, because while he does play a lot of kind of like heavy characters and mob characters uh, etc his background is the theatre A Bronx Tale a lot of people don't know is that that was based on his life it was like a a play that he put together way back and then that kind of vaulted him into into, uh, the roles that he's known for now um, was he your number one guy that you wanted to go to to play the role of Raymond Patriarca?
0: Uh, you know, he was a guy that we weren't sure that we were going to be able to get because of scheduling. Uh, so I was really hoping that we would be able to get him, and it kind of came right down to the wire. And I remember being told, uh, I, I was sitting there eating lunch, and I remember being told literally like a week before production, okay, it's official, Clive, uh, we, uh, uh, Chaz is in to play Raymond. Um, so it was really exciting for me because it's a no—it's just like such a slam dunk for Chaz Palminteri to play Raymond Patriarca. I mean, I remember taking a side-by-side photograph of the two men and comparing them, and it's really uncanny—the resemblance is there. Obviously, Chaz can play these characters in his sleep. This is what he kind of has made a, a living doing for many years, and it's beyond him just—you know—dialing up okay, let me play generic mob guy number one, you know, he knew all about Raymond Petriarcha. He knew all about the kind of subtle sense of humor that Raymond had. He knew all about his operation and how, how powerful he was. Um, so it was a pleasure to work with a guy who understood the character before we even started shooting. You know, of course, Raymond. I met his son. That's what he said to me. Uh, so it, it was incredible uh, to have him and uh, i would say you know i I never play favorites because i I obviously had this something uh, i had a memorable moment with every actor in the entire set but it was really something for me to work with chaz because growing up obviously i'm an italian kid from Cranston, rhode island you know that's very similar kind of demographic to you know the story that we see in a bronx tale and that was a movie that i remember i was probably about the same age as little c when that movie came out, and I remember watching it with my parents as like a little seven or eight year old, probably a little too young to be watching it at the time, and just like being enthralled with the movie and enthralled with Chaz Palmateri and his performance. And he was kind of a new actor on the scene back in the early 90s. And yeah. I was just like, who, who is this guy? He's awesome. Um, so it's, it's pretty surreal to, you know, cut to 20 years later, whatever it was. And uh, I got a chance to have him uh, play in my film as our... Uh, mafia figure Don, so um, life is a funny thing sometimes, and it 's just when you when you 're in entertainment it 's kind of fun to to work with people uh, you know i 'm not above saying that yeah i 'm a fan of this guy, you know I grew up liking his loving his his work, so you know I, I still get excited you know this is my sixth film, but I still get excited to work with some of these guys that I grew up on
1: vault is of course a period movie set in the 1970s i'm curious tom when it comes to you, you shot this film in rhode island where a lot of this action happened when it comes to the the city's um, uh, infrastructure its architecture has a lot changed over the years can you still shoot um, in certain, um, certain locations you use certain buildings that are very much uh, like they were back then or was there certain changes that you had to kind of like move around and and get you had to get a little inventive with it
0: Rhode Island is a very classic place, uh, especially Providence, and not a whole lot has changed in the downtown area. Although there are a lot of high-rises that have been put there that weren't there back in the 70s and things like that, uh, there are certain nooks and crannies of the city that just flat out have not changed since the 70s. Uh, So we really benefited from jumping in there and finding those spots that could kind of sell the fact that we were in a bigger city than we were actually in in that era. And of course we did a lot of trickery. You know, I was talking to some friends as we were watching the movie the other day. And, uh, you know, someone had mentioned, Oh, you know, they saw like visual effects and they're like, Oh, what visual effects were there? And I was like, you'd be surprised how much visual effects are in this film that you can't even see that are there to remove things that gave away the current period. Hmm. So a lot of times we'd go in and if there was like a fancy sign that was light up and neon or whatever, that might not have existed in the seventies, we'd remove it. Uh, If there was a security camera on the side of a building that clearly wouldn't be there in the 70s, we'd have to remove it. Um, So there was even an entire building that wasn't there in one of the Skyline shots that we were able to remove. So CGI has come a long way. And uh, a lot of times, you know, to, to me, the greatest special effects or visual effects, they're the ones that you don't even know are there. I'm just curious about
1: shooting a period film in regards to technology. Um, meaning if you do a heist movie these days, or let's me for example, a horror movie, uh, because you have a background in that as well. Um, in the 1970s, you walk into a room, it's dark, the light switch doesn't work, you're stuffed. You've got nowhere to go and you can't see anything. These days, you can pull out your iPhone and you can switch on that little sure. light and it kind of ruins everything. Um, and <laughs> I think with a heist movie, you've got the similar kind of stuff. Um, you take away t- advantages um, that certain characters might have, um, you know, usually in, in this film, it's like you know, don't raise the alarm, don't do stuff like that, you know. If if that if this heist was based in today's day and age, someone might get on their phone and text someone or, or call someone, etc. Um, does working in a time period that doesn't have those kind of technological advances does that free you up to be able to do really good stuff with tension, uh, with character, and, and things like that?
0: Oh, of course, and, and if anything, it's just a great kind of uh, look into a window to the past I mean the opening conversation of the film we've got Deuce and Chucky arguing over whether or not they're going to wear a mask Uh, and there's even a line about like hey I heard they got cameras at the banks in California they got those these days and he's like I don't care you know I'm I'm not nobody cares about your face nobody remembers that stuff I'm not wearing a mask which is just which is just
1: insane to me by the way when I saw that I was like wow this guy's really confident
0: well yeah and and, you know you got to imagine you know Obviously, uh, it's pretty brazen, but he's got a point. I mean, back then when there aren't security cameras, it's really hard to make an eyewitness account of someone and get it to a T, uh, especially when you're nervous. Uh, so it's one of those things where, yeah, that was a big factor. And, and it's just, it's, a, it's very freeing. And it's a lot of fun. Just I'm, I'm a historian. I'm a big history buff. I love to kind of, um, you know, take a look at the, into the past and kind of see how things were in certain decades. And I think all filmmakers are kind of, whether they know it or not sort of historians, visual historians, and uh, it's just kind of fun to think that, like, wow, it really was the Wild West back then in a lot of ways. I mean, security-wise, if you think about it, not a whole lot had changed from 1975 to, like, uh, 1875, you know? Before the advent of video cameras in every building... I mean, nowadays, you can't walk down the street without being recorded by probably six or seven different cameras that you didn't even know were there. Yeah. They're just like on, on telephone poles, you know, checking traffic, and you, and you could be picked up on a camera. Whereas back then, I mean, geez, to, be, to have a security camera, there might have been just, you know, at the White House, you might have had a security camera. You know, it'd be a very rare thing. Um, so it's a, it's a lot of fun to play in those worlds, and technology certainly plays a hand in all that.
1: This film, Vault, is definitely the biggest one that you worked on as a, as a director and a writer. Um, when it, you come from a background of uh, low-budget, independent fare, and then you move on to something like this, which is also an independent film, but much more substantial to the other films you had before, I have read a quote where you said that this project, the budget on this project, was bigger than all of the other projects combined before that. When that happens... Is it more money, more problems, or is it more of a luxury that you have more resources to work with?
0: It can be more money, more problems. um, You know, because what ends up happening is, naturally, when you have a little bit more money to to play with, there's a trickle down across the board. Uh, You know, the crew that you work with, everybody costs a little bit more. Or the cast that you're working with is going to cost a little bit more. Um, At the end of the day, the money that you have to actually make the film, meaning the nuts and bolts doesn't go up as much as you think because a lot of that's going to union fees and things like that. And, and, you know, the benefit there and why it's a great thing is because now I'm able to work with people that have been doing this for 20 years, you know, and it's like no offense to any of the people that I worked with in the past. In fact, if you look at my track record, I tend to to bring a lot of people from job to job. I Mm -hmm. like to work with a lot of the same people and a lot of my closest friends and, and colleagues have kind of grown with me. We've all gotten a little bit better every film. But for the most part, it's great to work on a union film and work with the gaffer or the grip who's been doing it for over a decade and then some. And they know how to get yourself out of any jam that you may find yourself in. And when you come up with an idea or a concept of how you want to shoot something that even you might quite frankly aren't sure how you want to accomplish it, but you can certainly, uh, you can explain what you want to do. And then they're the guys who say, Oh yeah. Well, all we do is we get a 10 by, we set it up right here. We get a track some dollies, some sort curved track, bring it around. Like they kind of just, they can make you, they have the ability to make your wildest dreams come true. Um, so that was the biggest benefit to me working with a bigger crew. A lot of the more ambitious shots that I would, you know, before maybe scratch my head and my crew would kind of, we'd all have to take a little extra time to figure out these folks just kind of know how to do it, you know? So that was the benefit there. Um, but yeah, it was a really it was really exciting playing at this level. you know it, it was a it was a blast and you know the, the thing was that a lot of people don't realize, although this movie was 10 times bigger than anything I had shot before, it was really not that much longer of a production schedule. I had 18 days to shoot this movie. Hmm. We shot six, We shot 16 days in Rhode Island and then we shot two pickup days in LA to make it look like it was you know the desert of las vegas you know outside las vegas so you know we're not talking about a 25 or a 35 or you know a day shoot or one of these you know long kind of campaigns here this was a very much still i don't want to call it a run-and-gun shoot but it was still very much a uh, fast-paced shooting six pages a day then and, and then some and uh you know it was uh, it was a real jam to get this movie shot in 18 days so that's kind of why i'd have to lean more towards it was more money more problems because you have a lot more exciting toys to play with but you still only have the same amount of days to work with so you know that's uh that's where you learn it's always a learning process but overall um you know the crafty was a lot better the food's a <laughs> lot better
1: <laughs> um when oh sorry i just lost my, my train of thought day okay i'm back on track um I talk to a lot of filmmakers, independent filmmakers, and I talk about uh, distribution and I talk uh, quite a bit about the playing field right now or the platforms available right now to get your movie out there. Uh, Once upon a time, it was just a cinema and then it turned to cinema video, then straight to DVD, then now video on demand streaming. Um, Yourself as a filmmaker... Uh, I know that Vault had a cinema release, uh, limited cinema release in, in the States, uh, but for most people around the world, a lot of my listeners as well, uh, video on demand is where they're going to they're gonna watch it. When you're filming a movie, does, do you keep that in mind, um, or is it just go out there, make the best film you can, and whoever is going to watch it are going to watch it you know, um, on, on all types of devices, and you just have to cater to all those tastes?
0: No, I never try to paint myself into a corner by saying, "Ooh, let me adjust this shot," because they won't totally get the true magnitude of it if it's not on a big screen. If they're watching it on a phone, you know, I, I think that's kind of putting the cart before the horse. Uh, you know, for me, like you said, I try to just make the best movie I can make with the time I have to make it in, and the budget I have to make it with. And uh, you know, I feel as though people will always be attracted to something that's exciting, something that's great. What well, They're watching it on a phone or on a tablet or on a computer. So I think the important thing is just make great movies and then, you know, people are going to find a a million ways to watch them, you know.
1: Very true. And uh, look, we're living in a time right now where Martin Scorsese's next film has gone straight to Netflix. And uh, I think this is like a big kind of monumental shift uh, where we have great filmmakers, classic filmmakers, making uh, films uh, for streaming companies. And I think um, something like The Irishman, uh, which in a lot of ways uh, is very much uh, has a relationship with the characters and the tone of your movie as well, um, that's going to change some things. Um, And so I'm really excited to see where the future goes. I'm really excited to see what you're going to do in the future. I read that uh, you're working on a sci-fi feature next. Yeah, that's right. Uh, You know,
0: Speaking of the future... Uh, we have a movie, myself and, and uh, my writing partner, B. Dolan, uh, who can't say enough great things about uh, B. And he's, he's, you know, really one of the driving creative forces behind a lot of the movies I've made. We made a movie called Almost Mercy together that I'm very, very proud of. Um, we, of course, wrote Vault together. And now our next mission is a movie called Jungle Room. We're also uh, bringing on a writer by the name of Matt Weiss. And, of course, Chad Verde is going to produce that one. And this movie takes a look into the not-too-distant future, and you had mentioned a lot of changes culturally that, that's going on right now uh, just without means of watching movies. Well, guess what? As you know, that's trickling down to changing the way we do everything, the way we communicate with people, the way we approach our jobs, the way we approach relationships, our, our bank accounts. Everything is becoming very advanced. And, of course, the uh, the catch word you're hearing a lot is AI. And AI is really becoming a big part of our lives. Uh, Well, my next film kind of takes a look at the future of that and what happens when humans and AI kind of are roaming the Earth at the same level in a weird way. And what happens when things like social media really jump forward and... um, you know, just what is going to happen to us as people and how will we change um and of course there's a lot more to it than that i don't want to give away too too many uh spoilers about this one just yet yeah. uh, again we still are scripting it we're in the creative process right now uh, but we have a really great draft that we're excited about uh, and we're honing in on it and uh, this is a chance for us to tell a story. In a different time period, uh, instead of the 70s, we're, we're jumping about 100 years <laughs> into the future. Uh, so it's going to be fun to extrapolate. I've always loved the concept of extrapolation and, and taking what we have today and thinking about what it's going to be like in the future. You know, that's always been an excited, an exciting notion of mine. Ever since I was a little kid, I love thinking about. I loved concept cars when I was a little kid, and I loved looking at you know photos of uh, illustrations of what life in space will be like and things like that. This is my chance to kind of uh, maybe tell that story for the little kid or the younger, younger person of today who can watch this film and kind of let their mind travel into what the future will be like. Um, and I think it, it also has a little bit of a, of a, it's got something to say, too, about, you know, where we might be headed.
1: But before that movie comes out, I can encourage everyone out there to check out Vault. Um, you can go to a Facebook page at Vault Movie. And they have all sorts of info on there where you can access the movie and watch it. Like I said, it's got a great cast: Theo Rossi, Clive Standen, and Samara Wiley, Don Johnson, Chaz Pellegrini, William Forsythe. Um, very energetic, stylish film. Great period piece movie done on an uh, independent budget. And Tom DeNucci, I congratulate you on that and congratulations on the movie. And thank I, you. And I look forward to uh, chatting in the future uh, when uh, more movies from you come
0: out. Thank you, Matt. I appreciate it. I really uh, I want to thank you again for having me on. And thanks to the listeners out there. Um, it's a really great time with you today.